Hello and welcome to Getting to You, the podcast for healthcare professionals who help those at risk or living with HIV, brought to you by the Connecticut AIDS Education and Training Center. My name is Dante Gennaro, Program Director of the Connecticut AETC at Yale University, and co-hosting with me today is Dr. Sharon McKay, Program Coordinator of the Connecticut AETC at Yale University. Hi. And Peter Gay-Namar, Project Manager at the Department of Health and Human Services at the City of Hartford. Hello there. To get CME for listening to this podcast, find the link to the CME website in the description of this episode. I'm really looking forward to talking to our guest speaker about today's topic of discussion, SUD and HIV. But first, like we do every podcast, let's kick off with today's hot topic. Peter Gay, take it away. Thanks so much, Sharon. So according to US News, there are schools that are stocking overdose reversal meds, but some worry about stigma. And that is a really juicy topic. As you know, we're going to be talking about substance use disorder today. But this article focused um, more so on uh, school districts in Colorado. Um, It started out talking about two different school districts, one who experienced a, a young student having an overdose situation and that school not being prepared with Narcan on, on staff and that, and that student sadly passed and another student in a similar situation where with at a school that did have Narcan and they were able to save that student's life. The article goes on to talk about how about one third of Colorado's school districts is signed up with the state program to uh, receive naloxone from the state. And that's about 65 schools in that district. Sadly, though, the article did talk about the fact that some of the uh, districts in the highest rate with overdose, they're not signed up. This article really was alarming to me because on one hand, we're seeing that there is uh, some law laws around um, having schools be prepared, having resources to have these these overdose meds or reversal meds on hand, and some schools having some trepidation on bringing that stuff inside the school because they don't want to be deemed as being the bad school or um, encouraging drug use or, you know, overall just stigma stuff. But there are some, there are some things here I wanted to point out that were a little bit like when you think about the age groups of some of the students that we're talking about in this article, 13 years old, passing from overdose in a school, um, in a bathroom, and, you know, just overall, some school districts still battling whether or not they want to have these reversal meds in school, again, not wanting to be deemed that type of school. But I appreciate that there are laws, there are some states Um, There are about 33 states in the country that there's explicit laws about having Narcan on on site and training staff or having employees have um, access to Narcan. And then there are some states that are required to have Narcan uh, overdose reversal meds on on site. And um, I'm happy to see that Connecticut is one of those states. Uh, that explicitly has laws around having uh, the resources available as opposed to required, but I'll take I'll take laws being in place, right? Some other things here that the article did talk about 
was uh, one of the health economists at Western University in Canada. She said that based on her thought, the most effective strategies from combating the opioid epidemic are needle exchange sites, supervised drug consumption sites, and medication assistance treatment that reduce cravings or mutes highs. I mean, there is clear acknowledgement here that students are very well-versed on where to source these drugs, fentanyl being a part of the equation. So it just makes sense that the schools also figure out ways to combat this, avoiding the stigma. So that was the article in a nutshell. Your initial thoughts, Dante? Yeah, so with me and stigma, I feel talking about the situation, talking about the problems, um, and then proactively working on solutions is how we're going to combat the stigma. And I'm a lo- along with you, I'm very happy to see that there are some states that are uh, pushing the use of naloxone in their schools. And I wish that that was across the board, especially because fentanyl can be on the surfaces of things. It isn't even like you need to be... Uh, taking a a drug um, to be exposed to it. And so why not have uh, life-saving medications or treatments on hand in case of an emergency? Absolutely. Um, The article also did state that there were experts vehemently opposed laws or having schools have access to this. They did not cite those reasons. I'm always wondering, like Hardy B says, what was the reason? (laughs) What is Absolutely. the reason that you don't you don't want this? We know that this is a problem. We have stats that state, you know, what it is with overdose and you know, how do you combat that? Sharon, um, your your thoughts on the article? Yeah, I just it got me to thinking, you know, every every state and even every municipality within a state often has very different relationships between school boards and the public schools and i wonder how many schools i was thinking about the schools in colorado that wanted that that are in areas where there's a a high injection drug use and they don't have any narcan on hand is it that they can't afford it that it's not in their budget and they're precluded from being able to buy anything that's not specifically budgeted what kind of relationships are they having with their school boards? I mean, it, it must be incredibly complicated. And so I like the idea that some states have laws that say, at very least, you can do it, because that would yeah. give a school some leverage with uh, maybe with an unruly school board, for example. <laughs> Agreed. The article also did mention that recently Narcan was made available over the counter for, I think, a cost of $45. Um, So that was referenced. I'm wondering if that might be something that could be used to aid the opposing. But again, when you're uh, uh, addressing an issue immediately in in a scenario such as a school, a bathroom, a lunchroom, you know, if you don't have it as as close as like you would have a fire extinguisher or defibrillator, right? These are all emergency situations. I think they should all be considered the same. Absolutely. I'm with you 100%, especially with your comparison with the defibrillator. It's a life-saving treatment, so why not have it on hand in case of an emergency, period? Absolutely. Agreed. I mean, because a perfect example is last year when Hartford had 
a 15 year old in gym class who overdosed and two of their friends also were exposed and were in critical care. And it was one of these situations that was very eye-opening. And I think that until a situation actually happens, that's where the stigma comes in. And then it's like, well, we're not going to do that because we don't want that here. We don't support that. Uh, We don't want to be looked at this way. But then when it actually happens at their location, Mm -hmm. then they're suddenly like, oh, well, maybe we should have had that all along. Okay, now we need to have that in place. And it's like, guys, just wise up, get the naloxone ahead of time, have the Narcan on hand. Like, what there shouldn't be any issues with this there shouldn't be any stigma absolutely agreed totally agreed so um we could talk about this all day uh, but if you want to learn more about the overdose reversal meds and the states that are either requiring or have some laws around sourcing naloxone or narcan uh, we'll include a link in the description of today's podcast and now it's time for our first quick break Don't go anywhere because when we come back, we have Alex Dittmore from the National Harm Reduction Coalition with us to discuss substance use disorder and HIV. We'll be right back in just a few. Hey, I'm Atiba. I was just tested for HIV for the first time. After going over my risk factors and getting back my test results, my doctor told me about PrEP as another method to prevent HIV, which I never knew of. Thanks to that doctor's visit, I'm now on PrEP. Not only am I protecting myself, but I'm also helping to protect my community. Now I'm paying it forward by telling everyone to screen and test. For more information, visit test-ct.org. All right, welcome back. We've invited subject matter expert Alex Dittmore to discuss substance use disorder and HIV. Welcome, Alex. We were hoping to get to know you a little bit better. Do you mind telling us who you are, where you work, what's your background? My name is Alex Dittmore, she, her pronouns. I'm a training and content development coordinator with the National Harm Reduction Coalition. A very fancy way to say that my whole position now is to do technical assistance, consulting, training, workshop facilitation with a variety of types of entities, individuals, things like that, all around best practices for working with folks who are using drugs, um, those who are working with sex workers and engaging sex workers, and kind of just all around what I guess the public health world would say is drug user health and sexual health. Um, So that's what I do here now. But before that, I worked all in Connecticut. So that's good. I've got a lot of knowledge of this specific area because of that. But I started off as a peer educator, like in my late teens, like 18, 19. So I started off in peer education around sexual violence, drug user health. I was just really into that because no one talked to me about it. Substance use chaotically was really prevalent in my household and my family and my neighborhood growing up. So It was something that I knew that I saw, but I didn't know how to address it. And it's funny because I work in harm reduction now, but I was very much a straight edge judgmental at first because of my own lived experience. And I'll be real. It took until I had my own experiences with chaotic substance use to like really understand the spectrum of things and how quickly things can creep up on you in different ways. Cause if we're shown one way of substance use, you think that's the only way it can be. And then if you experience something different, you're like, oh, that's quite different. Um, so I did peer education. And then I moved up into doing a lot of street outreach and syringe exchange programs. And then I had the privilege of running a drop-in center in Hartford for Connecticut Harm Reduction Alliance, which is where I stayed until I came here to National. 
So I've always done direct care. Um, I love it the most. I've been blessed to be able to work in harm reduction specifically, as well as having been able to have worked at like an aid service organization that really focused on HIV and sexual health. So that way I could kind of blend the two because unfortunately they can get quite siloed from one another. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. That's wonderful. Thank you so much for sharing um, about your work in personal history. Uh, do you have any thoughts on hot topic that we discussed, stigma in schools carrying naloxone or Narcan? I have many thoughts on it. Um, I guess I would say to start. So like first I'm Hartford, you know, Hartford based. I worked in Hartford. So when you talk about what it's like when it comes close to home, when that, you know, we had that young person who passed in school, what happened was because we don't want to talk about drugs in school. They shut down the entire school for days because they thought that it could go airborne, that fentanyl would somehow get into the vents, become airborne and like make other kids overdose and expose them. And so when we don't talk about these subjects, not only are we not prepared for an emergency, but we're also spreading misinformation that doesn't really help anyone um, because the reality is you're going to have to ingest fentanyl some way. Like when you said about how you don't have to take a drug itself, that's true, but you have to be able to ingest it somehow. So unfortunately, if you have something tragic, like in New York, an infant going through it, infants put a lot of things in their hands and their mouth, stuff like that has to go into an orifice. It happens a lot more with young people in general, because we touch our faces more, um, maybe post COVID, not as much, but something like that as well. Um, it makes me sad because the reality is, like you said, the schools that tend to need it the most are the ones that are scared to admit it. They think that it says, oh, those are the students we have here, or the school is failing our community and our students because we have it. But I personally am of the type where if I can have a tool, I want to utilize it, particularly if I'm working with young people. Like I would much rather have to administer naloxone than watch a child overdose and not be able to respond until EMS arrives. Absolutely. And I think to your point, you know, there was a situation where there was a, a student who um, snorted a pill. They mm. didn't know what that there was fentanyl, that it was laced with fentanyl, or that fentanyl was on the pill. Um, and so to your point, I've heard of even marijuana being laced with fentanyl. So people might be thinking that they're eating something that has th just THC in it. And in fact, could have something else and not know. And so I agree. It's, I think it's always just better to be prepared so that you're not in that situation of having to sit there and just watch sort of helplessly as EMS is coming over. Absolutely. So um, you kind of segued into a question I had um, where we like to understand the passion of our subject matter experts, your dynamic of what you do. So you, you lightly touched on, you know, personal experience. Can you share uh, what early professional and or personal, if you wanted to go a little bit deeper, um, help fuel your passion for your current work in the harm reduction space? Of course. Um, I'm comfortable with it. Like I said, luckily I do all trainings. So now I just get used to talking about it. Um, part of what I like about harm reduction is I've always said you can take the parts of yourself, behaviors you've engaged in, things that have happened to you. And they're usually things you don't talk about, you're most ashamed of and stuff like that. And you can actually make it 
meaningful and beneficial and helpful to others. And not only that, but it like actually contributes to change behavior, changed impact. And I've seen that in real time. So for me, it started off with, I mean, honestly, I just grew up in a household where there was chaotic drug use from pretty much the age of like four or five. So it was something that I grew up around, but it was very common in my community in Northern California, where up there kind of everyone had that. Um, the family, like there was just a lot of meth use in general that wasn't uncommon. It was when I moved to Connecticut, small Northern Connecticut near the Massachusetts border and everyone's family owned houses and there were not people that were utilizing like meth or opiates around me yet. Um, or at least that I was cognizant of that. I was like, oh, this is different. Okay. Now I really, really stick out, which is different than how a lot of folks are raised. But what I did then see was in my community here, since no one talked about it, there be, ended up being a lot of opiate use. I went to a small school, graduated with like 90 something kids. And I unfortunately know way too many people that have died of fatal overdoses um, because it's just different. It's different when you're in a bigger community where drug use is more prevalent and open um, than when you're not. So for me, I've always been a loud, outspoken, highly opinionated child, became that even more as an adult. So I just kind of saw none of this is working. No one wants to talk about these topics, but they're happening all the time. So I just always moved towards talking about topics that people didn't want to. I taught sex ed in high schools, you know, to a bunch of teenagers that always want to try to say something nasty to get you to blush or to get under your skin or whatever. But I always liked that. I was like, why do you do that? And like, why do we engage in the things we do? Like, what do you do about it? So I would say curiosity and yeah, of course, like lived experience, anger, rage, and like overall curiosity and human behavior. Thank you so much for doing what you do too. I mean, it sounds like you're providing safe spaces, especially for youth to have an opportunity to actually think and be in a place where they can verbalize some of these thoughts with someone who isn't going to shut them down. They're not going to judge them. They're not going to uh, ostracize or make them feel like you're bad for thinking these things or for talking about these things. And so right. I, th I think that's a, that's a blessing. Thank you so much. Thank you. That's very kind to hear. I really do think that the best way to do this kind of work is to have people like yourself that truly know at the core what it is because of the experience. Because I think, you know, we're talking about, yeah, your passion, but I really think passion and purpose align. And mm. when you're truly walking in it, from, you know, just knowing just what your path was and wanting to change the trajectory of someone who you cross paths with or just because of your purpose and your passion, you're in front of people that, you know, your story um, and just your your zeal for this work will save a life. It's going to end. And if you're not already told this, you're going to create a ripple effect. Someone just hearing, even if they're not, physically presenting as like they're agreeable like the heart the heart understands differently sometimes than like the outward so like you just doing this work and doing it in the manner of which you do it it's real it's raw and I think that's how you connect so thank you so much thank you <laughs> that's nice to hear because work is very 
incredible and also really devastating and isolating because it's yeah. just a lot of loss and a lot of people telling you that like what you like the folks that you're working with the people that you literally are in community with are like not worthy of care services or like folks living with HIV like they deserve what happened to them sort of mentality and you're just like like I say the rage is also part of it and people laugh because I've been asked before like what drives you in this work and I was like unrelenting rage I was like, like truly just the I absolutely do not have a bystander bone like in my body I do not know how to do that and I just think that like more people need to not necessarily be as loud as me um I could probably be quieter but like you you gotta like what does it mean if we talk about it oh this is so abhorrent oh I hate this it means absolutely nothing if you don't do anything about it if you don't like talk with people who don't agree with you if you don't get cursed out by someone telling you whatever they don't agree at some point, like, you know, it's a privilege to be in this work because the reality is a lot of people don't live long enough to be in it, um, aren't granted access. It's not even legal to do some of the work I've done in Connecticut in certain states. Mm. Um, but thank, thank you. Thank you very much. Absolutely. So you're currently working at the National Harm Reduction Coalition based in New York. What is your favorite part about working with this organization? easy. I get to talk about my passion um, every day. And it's with different people because the thing is, even if I have folks that are reaching out to me who don't totally agree with harm reduction, they're open to it. They want to talk about it. Like they're open to learning about it. And I get told pretty honestly, when uh, there's going to be folks in the crowd who are you know, not for it. It's I think that it summarizes it really well. Um, and I think now I'm getting old and that I'm telling the same stories, but I had an evaluation form that I got at a training and it was about harm reduction and housing settings, right? And this is a training for a few hundred housing providers, direct care service providers. And I was told in a feedback form, uh, I fundamentally disagree with the moral and ethos of Miss Dittmore, but she seems like a kind person. <laughs> Which was saying, I literally disagree with everything you're talking about with harm reduction, which mind you, I was a, I was taming it in that training. Um, <laughs> but they literally said like, totally disagree with what she said, but like, she seems nice because I try to invite people to like push back on me. And I just appreciate when people will actually engage in a topic that's really taboo, really uncomfortable, usually highly personal, and everyone's afraid to say the wrong thing. Um, yeah. So my favorite part of working there is that I get to have those conversations with so many different types of people, just like all the time. So, so I was thinking about, while well, I was listening to you talk about your work in harm reduction, I got to thinking if I was to ask, um, you know, 10 people what they thought harm reduction was, I think most of them would probably say syringe services, right? So what exactly is harm reduction and what do harm reduction services actually look like? That makes me laugh because I just did a training where uh, someone was saying they're in rural Northern Colorado and she was saying, everyone looks at me like harm reduction equals syringe. Um, and it's true because it is right. And that's so it waters it down completely because harm reduction, first of all, is a movement of taking care of one another, particularly in the place where systems that are supposed to care for you don't. So like when we think about it in the drug user health realm, it really came out of the AIDS epidemic, which mind you, of course, HIV and AIDS, it's not just transmitted by drug use or even necessarily exclusively associated with it. But because of that intersection at the time of stigma of 
HIV, as well as substance use, you really saw those communities coming together absolutely heavily to take care of one another because, well, providers wouldn't. Their family members wouldn't. You had medical providers that were afraid beyond just stigma, but afraid and not knowing what things were. So they dove into that. Um, so really harm reduction is taking care of one another in a very true holistic sense to me. What that looks like for services would be a holistic way of wrapping around someone and a community, not just an individual, but you can't truly try to reduce harm if you're not looking from a community perspective. We can't be so individualistic. It's got to be mental health care, housing care, you know, food, you got to have community, spiritual care. That could be for anyone. People got to have something. You can't just be completely isolated. That's when we see such extreme behaviors. That's when we see pockets of, you know, like STIs, HIV rates going up because no one is connected to other people or you're stuck in your tiny little siloed communities. Um, so to me, harm reduction is yes, drug user health, it's sexual health, but really it's like engaging people holistically and authentically so you can find out what they need and connecting them to it, ideally long-term. And yeah, finding, they always say meeting people where they're at, but not leaving them there sort of thing. And it, it really is that you want them to be able to have self-efficacy, like do things on their own. <laughs> so a sort of ideal harm reduction worker would be somebody who could help assess what a person needs to get them out of some kind of harmful, harmful situation and then help them find those things that they need. Like if it's housing, if it's mental health services, if it's clean needles, doesn't really Yeah. Matter. And basically just kind of like a, a social work light, I guess, for it all without feeling the responsibility of having to do all of those things yourself. That's where, you know, having a robust referral network would be great because you can't do everything. But if you're coming to me for substance use, right, let's say you're coming to me for um, addiction medicine specifically. Uh, well, it's going to be hard for me to just, I can give you, I guess, methadone or suboxone. Sure. But if you have a really, really unstable housing environment, if you don't have a job, if your family kicked you out, um, for whatever type of reason, you have all these other things. I'm really not setting you up for actual long-term recovery or success. I have to look at you as a whole person to figure out how can we do that? How do we wrap around that in and of itself? So I don't want to scare people by making it sound like you have to do everything for everyone. It's just taking a step back and not being too, too, too hyper analyzed on one specific component of someone's behavior or self identity, et cetera. It's almost like a, if you could come up with another name for harm reduction, it would almost be like a, a like a life improver. Like you're finding someone yeah. and helping them That's improve their life in what other, whatever capacity uh, they might need it. And I don't know. I don't know if that's exactly the best terminology, but maybe we should try <laughs> finding a term that focuses on the positive side of this work instead of the negative, uh, mm -hmm. just being mindful of the words. Instead of harm reduction, what are we trying to do? We're trying to lift people up. We're trying to help them get to a, a better place in their life. Yeah, whatever that is. Um definitely not just harm reduction equals syringe, though a very important thing to fund. Please keep funding harm reduction programs. They're very, very, very effective. Um, but yeah, absolutely more than that for sure. So so if we think about it to, to sort of come back to HIV and to think about it in terms of HIV in Connecticut, 
Um, in your experience working with um, a lot of people who are, for example, people who are injecting drugs or people who are, what did you call it? Chaotic? Chaotic use. This is infiltrating every aspect of my life. So with your experience um, working with folks who are experiencing that, what Mm. would you say, what substances would you say are contributing the most to new cases of HIV in Connecticut? Well, as we know, like syringe use in general, so injection drug use in and of itself is going to have much, much, much higher prevalence just because it's a heck of a lot harder for HIV to survive once it hits the air. But HIV, we're really just seeing an increase more with injection drug use, which is ideally and luckily reduced by having things like syringe exchange programs. So that way you don't have to share syringes. Um, When it comes to the direct substances in Connecticut specifically, we have a higher prevalence more so of opioid injection drug use. So at the beginning, when I talked about being from California, methamphetamine is way more prevalent out there than it is here. Methamphetamine is not very prevalent in Connecticut. We really tend to have opioids, the opioids consisting of fentanyl, heroin mix, really fentanyls in it. At this point, we're seeing xylazine now, which is um, a tranquilizer. We see that in Connecticut mixed with opioids. And then we're really just seeing cocaine and crack. Um, You can mainline crack or cocaine, which means that you can inject it. But what I've seen in my experience, particularly working with folks who are also living with HIV, is that it tends to be surrounding opiates in general. Um, Also, that could be because we just see more opioid injection use here as opposed to other stimulant injection use like in other states. But for Connecticut, tends to be much more around opioids. I see. So in other states, we might, like in California, maybe it would be more methamphetamine. Colorado, Uh, actually, for example, is one where you have a lot more meth use. But then again, for there, they also tend to smoke more. Um, And just depending where you are, like down south, um, heroin or fentanyl, like is in tar form. In Connecticut, up here, it's powder. So it's much, much more different. You know, you can't snort tar. Um, (laughs) You can snort powder, but it, it totally depends where you are geographically. So it's my nerd brain gets fascinated by that because I'm like, oh, what's happening? Where it's so different. But yeah, unfortunately, Connecticut opioids and really associated with injection drug use explicitly. It is fascinating to hear about all the different types of drugs and the different forms and to see what communities are using, uh, you know, for what purposes and, and mm-hmm. the differences in, in the communities. It's very fascinating. I would imagine it's a lot to try and keep track of. It is. And it's ever changing because, you know, when you have, let's say, meth use that's more prevalent, like out West, over here, I mean, the East Coast, a lot of it would be put in quote, the party and play scene, where when you're talking about methamphetamine, there's this heavy emphasis on talking about it in specifically in like the queer sex scene, more so sp- talking about gay men, usually cisgender, as well as like trans folks, trans folks engaging in sex and using methamphetamine as well. Um, I think that it's like really fascinating to talk about it because instead of just party and play, you're seeing a lot more conversations and research talking about how it can be affirming for people because they have a hard time connecting with their body, whether it be because of gender dysphoria, sexual trauma, trauma, things like that, where it's like, if I engage in this substance use before sex, I actually feel like I can be present during sex, which I think is kind of the opposite of what most people think. They might think, oh, it's so that way you can be gone from your body, right? Like that way you don't have to think about anything else. But for those of us who feel kind of trapped in our body or our brain, sometimes different substances can make you feel more present. So 
it's been yeah, yeah that's that's the other fun part of my job then I guess it's just talking with people about like what things do for them and what it looks like where they are oh that's fascinating thank you uh now it's time for our second quick break stay tuned because when we come back we have more to discuss with Alex Dittmore about evidence-based approaches to conducting outreach among the SUD community and more you don't want to miss this hola mi nombre es Pedro siempre he usado condón para prevenir contagiarme de VIH Pero esta última vez tuve un desliz. Semanas después, me di cuenta que tenía síntomas como el de un resfriado común. Afortunadamente, tenía una cita con mi doctor la semana siguiente. Mi doctor hizo algunos exámenes de rutina, incluyendo el del VIH. Ahora estoy en PrEP, cuidando a mí y a mi comunidad, diciéndoles que se chequen y se hagan la prueba del VIH. Para más información, visita test-ct.org. Welcome back. We've been talking with Alex Dittmore about substance use disorder and HIV. And our next question pertains to field outreach. Alex, are you ready? Yes. So we do want to know uh, what evidence-based approaches are most effective in conducting outreach in your field. I love talking about outreach. That's where my heart lies. Outreach is a term that is very much overused and heavily diluted. Outreach is not just going to other service providers and doing things like that. Depending on your position, it can be. If you're someone who does education, coordination, trying to get referrals, outreach is absolutely something like going to a provider's office, finding out, hey, what services do you provide? What are your thoughts and beliefs on working with people with HIV, on working with people who are utilizing substances? That's great. And if you are only doing that and not actually going out into the community, you're not doing holistic outreach. So depending on the services you provide, it's going to look different. For me, doing drug user health, harm reduction services, that means physically going out into the community. That's going to be your most effective and beneficial way to do things, which is going out into encampments. If you're going to try and reach populations that normally do not want to be reached, um, you're going to have to go to them. People that are going to be like resistant to going to services yourself. So that means going to encampments, going to bus stops, going to areas where there's open air drug use, going to places and spaces where you may not feel very comfortable um, because you have to get to know the community. So one, going to those spaces and outreach. Another thing about very, very effective outreach conduction would be, who are you sending out? One of the best things that you can do is employ people from the community to serve the community that they're in. Like not just lived experience, but if I'm trying to serve in the North End of Hartford, then guess who I'm going to probably employ more of? Folks from the North End of Hartford, because they're already trusted in their community. They're known in their community, even if they aren't fully trusted yet. And what it does is it allows you to figure out where people really are, the different intricacies of what it means to exist in that community and allows you to see way more barriers. So beyond me just saying this anecdotally, also one thing that you see a lot is like the CDC talking a lot about peer delivered services. So that would be something where you have folks with lived experience um, in a variety of fashions, you know, folks living with HIV, people who have experience in incarceration, people just from the area doing that outreach in and of itself. I think if this has not been done already, it'd be so awesome to do a documentary on how you do this work, like on camera. And I know that there are there are documentaries out there, but just to see how you navigate and work with the community the way you do would be really great. So if you wouldn't mind uh, telling us really how you engage those, a little bit more about how you engage those uh, hard to reach communities or populations, that'd be great. Well, 
there is actually a bit. So um, somewhat a Hartford native. Um, so Kennard Ray, who I have worked with before in a variety of capacities in public health, um, as well as like different kind of like community organizing, he and a group of folks from Hartford put together something called the Frontlines, which was like a series, like a docu-series. And the agency that I worked at in Connecticut, Connecticut Harm Reduction Alliance, they were heavily centered in that. And it involves talking with people who are experiencing homelessness and drug use, like in Connecticut, in Hartford specifically, what does that look like? Talking with, um, shout out to Peter Canning, like, you know, great EMS provider um, and someone who works in overdose response in Connecticut, getting to see those perspectives. So I can drop those links for you to help give them some credit as well as some locals. But when it comes to actually conducting outreach, it's depending where I'm going. So luckily for me, I worked for a place where I got to not just do outreach in Hartford, but also we went to other communities. So like Enfield, Connecticut, for example, outreach there looked very different in a rural community, in a rural setting. But if I'm going out in Hartford, if I'm lucky and I got an outreach van or car that is working that day, then maybe I have that. And for us, what we had at Connecticut Harm Reduction, which was really innovative and really cool, was we developed these things called mobile rovers. And what it was is you took essentially like an industrial sized toolbox, like you would have for manual labor positions, where they kind of close up and they have wheels and you can be able to, you know, pull it like a dolly. But what we did was we refashioned all of the compartments to have syringe service exchange supplies. So you had all of your harm reduction supplies there and it allows for low barrier services as well as low impact. Um, low impact meaning I can be very private and very discreet if I need to be, which is really important depending where you are. Um, first thing that comes with outreach is going out there and just actually introducing myself to people. You have to put yourself out there. People are not gonna come to you. You have to put yourself out there and be kind. You say what your name is. I would go up to any space, like if I'm going to a park, if I'm going to a bus station, if I am going to Unity Plaza off of Barber Street, like wherever I'm going, like up anywhere. And I come out and I go, hey, like, hey, y'all, how you doing? Like, my name's Alex with Connecticut Harm Reduction Alliance. Just to let y'all know, me and my coworker, whoever I'm with, you know, we've got some supplies out here for you or anyone you know that may need them. You know, if you've got any questions, let me know. Otherwise, have a good one very quick. It's just kind of like almost like a sales pitch real quick, which is I'm coming into your space. Obviously this is audio. I am a white lady talking about going into spaces and Harper that are predominantly Puerto Rican and black. So I already stick out. There's something that I have to be able to address with that, which is I'm going to let you know I'm in this space, not because I'm trying to occupy a lot of it, but because I'm coming into your community. So let me tell you, I'm here. This is who I am. This is why I'm here. And then I want to let you know that I have things if you want it. I usually then get asked questions like, what do you got? And I always emphasize for you or someone you know, because a lot of people are afraid to say that they need something. You know, it'll be like, oh, someone I know has this sort of issue before. Yeah. I don't care who it's for. I want you to feel comfortable enough to talk to me and effective outreach. And especially when we're talking about those populations that aren't easier to reach, it takes a long time to build trust. That means showing up consistently when you say you will at that outreach spot, even when people don't want to show up. I had a long-term client who came up to me once at the Parkville Fast Track, like after four or five months of when I started that outreach spot, he came down one day, he goes, you know, I've been asking a lot of people about you. And I decided you're not a cop. And at the time, <laughs> I'm 25, I have bright purple hair. <laughs> and I'm coming in my like rusted out vehicle. 
And I'm like, how would you think that I, who would employ me as a police officer? And also I hope I would make more money than this. Um, (laughs) But nonetheless, like it really took a long time to develop trust. And it has not even just because of the community I was in specifically, but like, it's going to take a long time to develop trust. And I think that providers get really burned out by that. And we want to hit deliverables really quick. And I think that funders don't get that, that it takes a while to get people to actually come to you. Like that's why they're harder to reach because you have to keep going and going and going and going until hopefully you're trusted enough for them to like come back for someone to ask you for that question to say like, Hey, I think I am ready for a program or like, you know what? I'm tired of being on the street. So you got to be out there. You have to be authentic. One thing you never want to do is go out and lie. Do not be inauthentic because you're going to be seen and read through. And then everyone's going to yeah. talk about you, the community as not to be trusted. Um, flat out. I really, I really wonder um, now that you're at a uh, national, um, how, how, cause I, I imagine it has to feel like a loss for those individuals who you probably built a rapport with and you know are you know knowing that when they see your face they know what you're coming with because you 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 understood what it took to be in their space to have them trust you um so I, I really I'm wondering how did you train other Alex Dittmores <laughs> out there to kind of replace you I don't know how if you have an answer for that but I'm sure it's a it's a it's a gap in uh, individuals who have connected if in they, how you've been able to work with them. What'd if they're say? the ones who liked me, um, <laughs> no, I say that because like when you end up becoming like the manager, it's you know you're the one who has to like respond to stuff and like yeah down when you don't want to. Um, but luckily for me, I'll be honest, like the place that I worked was founded by someone who is from Hartford and a peer. So like almost everyone I worked with was someone who had lived experience. So even if we talked different, I was known for kind of being soft. I'll be honest. I got teased. Um, (laughs) They would be like, it must be like the therapist out there. Cause I like talking to people. I think that that's the most effective outreach, but it also, it was because it was my strong point. I had more emotional bandwidth and could do other things like that. And other people have different strengths and emotional bandwidths and stuff like that. Uh, So what I did, part of my job was training um, outreach staff, actually. And so my biggest thing was to always remind people, we are not here to save them. I am nobody's savior. You got to get that out of your head. You got to get like any sort of like savior complex out of there. Not just because that isn't why you shouldn't be doing the work, but also because you're going to burn out really fast. If you are constantly expecting, like if I'm expecting everyone to get into abstinence-based recovery, I'm going to be really upset all of the time at my job Um, in order to try to like fill that. You got to have authentic relationships with people and you got to also try to get people to realize that they can trust others. I think what happens sometimes in these helping professions is that we actually make people really dependent on us. I want you to be able to depend on me. I want you to be able to depend on me to show up for what I'm going to do. But what I actually don't want is to create an entire society of folks who absolutely don't know how to function without a caseworker, because I can't guarantee that you're going to get a caseworker that actually gives a crap. You may get the caseworker that really just needs this good insurance to take care of their family and isn't a bad person, but like this just isn't, it's not where their passion is um in in general so that and I still go back I was there yesterday I was like so I I still see people I got to get my hugs I got to make sure that people are good and 
Yeah, it feel it feels great. You get people that actually will come back. A lot of folks at the facility I worked at before, a lot of folks will come back um, after a while and they want to tell you like, look at me, like I gained weight, I look good, I went to this program, Love or that. I reduced I my use. Awesome. Yeah, like it feels, I never expect it. And it always kind of surprises me when people do. Cause I'm like, whoa, you want to like come back? Or you like, you want to call me? That's cool. Um, Cool. I'm glad. Like, I like it, but I'm always surprised because it's not like the expectation. So I guess I tell people that is just release yourself of saving everybody because you can't. Well, that's not what we're here to do. And also just you really, really got to be as open-minded as you can. Like I was raised to be curious in life, be curious because people have said some things to me that I go, what? But I can't say that in the moment. But in my head, I'm like, I'm sorry, whoa, what? But I'm able to, over time, yeah. just be like, that's interesting. Like, what does that do for you? Like, you know, I'll be on- like, if I have a face, I'll be honest. And I'll just be like, oh, I'm sorry for my face. Like, I'm interested. Like, what does that do for you? I haven't heard much of that before. If you feel comfortable sharing. And that can be a drug behavior. That can be a sexual behavior. That can be like a weird food combination that someone says they like. And I'm like, what does that taste like for you? <laughs> like, what? That's a great life skill. Yeah. Yeah. Like, hmm, interesting. I think that's the motivational interviewer in me. That's my other thing. Harm reduction is motivational interviewing. It's the tell me more. <laughs> um, tell me more about that. What? What? What is it that you said you like to do? Motivational interviewing is definitely a awesome uh, evidence based approach. I think everybody, everybody who's working with the public should do motivational interviewing training. I I use that the most. If you're working in any direct service I've ever worked has been that. When I worked in inpatient mental health, doing drug user health, doing sexual health, like motivational interviewing is everything because even, people don't want to listen to you talk at them. Absolutely. Even medical providers. Right. Absolutely. So we were also kind of talking about, this touches a little bit on earlier with our hot topic about people who oppose harm reduction and wanting, they didn't want to have naloxone available in schools. And we talked a little bit about all the stigma around this topic. So when it comes to educate people who have this idea, well, if they're doing those actions, they deserve it. If they're doing that substance, they deserve to have that overdose or they deserve to fill in the blank if they're doing those things mm-hmm. they're they're attaching a morality to people's uh actions when you're working with people like like that how do you combat that sort of mentality to help get them to open up a little bit and maybe maybe not necessarily bring them over to this side but at least get them to be a little bit more open to thinking about it so for me i guess the first thing i always do is i ask people like what led them to feel that way or like what led them to believe whatever that may be because for a lot of people like you just said it does tend to be a moral thing they tend to think that like oh you know substance use is a moral failing therefore anything that comes from it you deserve it is earned whatever that may be um for other folks though i always tend to ask because what i've noticed is it tends to be very very fear based it's either just a genuine like lack of understanding and knowledge Yes, that's part of it. But a lot of it tends to be very fear-based. And that could be, I've been through it myself. That could be, I've seen it before. It could also be, it hasn't happened in my family yet before. And I'm 
so terrified that it's going to happen in my family, especially with an increased prevalence of seeing it like nationally, internationally, things like that. So I first ask people like where that's coming from, like why they're so against it. So then I know, okay, how do I actually approach you about it? So for some of my folks who are like really against it, because they're like, that's a waste of tax dollars. Oh, I love to talk about cost efficacy of harm reduction services, because then I start comparing the prices that it costs to pay for medication for things to pay for emergency room visits for folks who actually don't have an ID. So they never actually got on state insurance, even if they qualified. Um, or if you have to have HIV treatment, which is incredible and has gotten so much better over time. Absolutely. But it's also expensive it's to keep extremely. someone on HIV treatment um, for the rest of their life, for the rest of their life. And hep C treatment as well isn't cheap. Luckily, it's a lot quicker now, you know, instead of doing interferon, which takes forever um, with less efficacy, now you have stuff that's more efficient, but it still costs more money. So the reality, and same with endocarditis, I mean, shoot, like wound issues, everything, all of that is very difficult to treat. So it's a lot cheaper to give out supplies. That's not my whole heart of harm reduction, but for people who are money folks, that's what I focus on. For the others, it tends to be um, enabling. I get told that a lot. Um, it's enabling people, enabling, enabling. And I say, yeah, actually, that's part of what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to enable you to take power over your own decisions. Um, I'm not here to coddle you, infantilize you, or baby you. You are engaging in this decision, and therefore, I need you to be engaging in like your actual health. If you're engaging in drug use, you need to be engaging in what your health around your drug use is, which means you should be coming and getting your syringes. You should be using these alcohol prep pads I'm giving you. Um, you know, you should be coming back and giving them to me so I can give you new ones so you don't have to reuse them, so you're not sharing them, you're, so you're not using tap water. I have sterile waters. Like it for me, that's where that whole harm reduction services comes in, right? Which is not just providing a tool. If I'm just handing you supplies and not actually talking to you or engaging you, that's not harm reduction. Same with if I'm just talking to you about things and then not providing you tools, that's also not harm reduction. You need to have both in order to actually practice it. You really, really, really do. Because if I'm just handing you stuff and I'm not talking about like your behaviors, your rituals with your substance use, your relationship with your substance use, then... I'm just giving you stuff. And I think that's what a lot of people tend to think it is. So I remind them that yes, drug user health supplies are part of harm reduction, but it's also a hell of a lot more than that. You know, it's having a community, you're connecting to people who don't talk to anyone else. You're giving them super robust referrals. I can't tell you how many <laughs> referrals we would give out every single day or how many providers of differing services that I would try to bring into the drop-in center um, to be able to do something. ID services, we had legal services, services for pardons, vocational services. Um, we would get food, clothing donations, like all different types of things. We also allowed people to do community service there. Like the whole point is to like get you feeling like you can be connected. Part of who we employed were folks who are actively using drugs. Because do you know what's really hard to do? Go from chaotic substance use and experiencing homelessness for a long time and then being told you're housed now and get a job. Absolutely. You like you haven't been able to do that yet. So actually wrapping around people to provide incremental change stages. So that way you can work with them to kind of work their way up. Really long-winded way to go about it. But that's the whole thing is it ends up being a long conversation. And I'll get some people who are just, they deserve to die, whatever, whatever. And I'm like, well, who told you that they deserve to die? 
And then I might give some explanations of how differing people get to substance use, but I try to steer away from that because I don't want people to think of who's a respectable substance user versus who's not, who's deserving of care, who's not. My blanket statement is like, this works. This isn't feelings-based. This is actually evidence-based as well. The CDC has considered this a best practice for like over 30 years. State of Connecticut has had syringe exchanges since 1996. So this isn't new. It's just now becoming more mainstream, which is a blessing and can be also a bit of a curse. Thank you so much. What a great little nugget. Just going that extra step further and asking them, well, what led you to, to think this way? And I think it really shows your ability to care for people, to go to that extra level. I know a lot of people will immediately get frustrated and upset and just want to like shut down the conversation or walk away. I mean, I do as well. (laughs) I'm sure. That also happens. (laughs) Another group of people that you probably deal with in your work would be healthcare providers. Oh yeah. And um, I'm curious, so what exactly are the legal and ethical responsibilities around advocacy for healthcare providers that are working with people that have um, substance use disorder? Ooh, now I'll speak from a Connecticut standpoint Mm -hmm. because it's very different per state. And then depending on the state, it can be very different per county, but Connecticut's a bit different. And I appreciate you saying legal and ethical because they can be different. It may be legal too, and some people may find that to be unethical, or something may also be illegal, but we may not deem it as actually unethical. I may Mm -hmm. think that like, if it's not able for me to do that, if I'm legally not allowed to, for example, my job doing syringe exchange work is illegal in certain states. Is it unethical to provide that service, even though it's not legal? Now, very different when we're talking about licensures, and I'm not going to pretend that it's not. So when we're talking about healthcare providers, like specifically, advocacy is something that's much, much more easy to get behind. It's going to depend really off of where you work specifically, if you have any sort of policies around what you're allowed to speak out on. If you do, particularly those of you that work at like DPH, large universities, like what you're allowed to say, where you have to make sure you give that nugget that says this is a representation of myself as an individual and not the institution I'm a part of. Being sure that you know those type of policies for yourself. What I would say that can be really helpful when it comes to advocacy for healthcare providers is questioning policies that they have. What I see a lot as someone who does consultations with honestly a lot of healthcare facilities is that they don't necessarily know why a policy exists. It may have been written by someone for a different grant or a different funder before. And then you don't know necessarily over time if you can adjust it, if you can make it a little bit more lax and stuff like that. But certain things are pretty cut and dry. So like medication-assisted treatment, for example, we're looking now at how to change dosage, like dosaging, particularly with methadone. But for that, when it comes to legal ramifications, you really want to make sure, of course, I want folks to stay safe, um, including our healthcare providers who are trying to be allies to harm reduction. So don't do anything that's going to risk you getting your license taken away. I understand that. I'm not going to ask you to do that, of course. Now, when it comes to ethical part, right, you have a duty to work with folks and to try to help heal them and not solve everything, but heal them. So what I would highly recommend for healthcare providers is to get more comfortable having these types of conversations with one another, as well as with their patients, because what you can do legally and ethically, in my opinion, if you're okay with it, ethically speaking yourself, 
is have discussions with people about their behaviors because that's how you're going to be able to do it. If I can't get you on medication assisted treatment yet, because your urine came back with benzodiazepines and we have a very strict policy that says that I have to take you off of it. I need to at least try to keep you engaged in services and communication with me to talk about what is going on. Is there a program where you can have that prescribed to you? Because there is, you know, in Hartford, we have a methadone program that allows you to have a benzodiazepine prescription, but it has to be a prescription. So maybe someone didn't have access to a psychiatrist, so they got it off the street. Like we're never going to know these type of things if all we're doing is doing a urinalysis and saying, you didn't pass, you're out of the program. So I would just say like trying to build in time to actually have more meaningful engagement with people. And when I know deliverables are the way they are, you need to push back on your funders and your grant writers about writing in certain things, about asking for adjustments, addendums, writing things into budget, like writing it into a budget line item. Because I know what it's like when you're being told, no, you only get a few minutes with people, period, point blank. Husky only pays this much. So you can only do this. Can we wiggle around certain things like in order to help try to engage people in a more meaningful way? So advocacy can happen with individuals. It can happen within your institution that you're in, you know, asking the questions as to why, lightly pushing back, trying to gain allies there. So that way it can be a conversation. I highly recommend trying to make it a conversation. People tend to be more open-minded to it as opposed to being like, everyone here is immoral and unethical because we do this can frighten folks a lot. So I would say really, you need to increase these conversations with your staff, your peers, your patients in general, because that's how you're going to learn how you can actually advocate. That's when you're going to be told the very strong line of, nope, you can't go past here is usually when you're getting real close to that line or just crossed it. For the legal part of it, I just want to make sure because it's different depending on what license you have, whether it be social work, whether you're working with youth, um, nursing, medical doctor. I just want to make sure I'm not telling folks to do something that'll get them in trouble. Right. So it sounds like there are different legal responsibilities and limitations depending on your scope of practice and the types of patients that you're working with. That's one thing. And then the ethical responsibilities are <laughs> just like they are out in the real world. <laughs> yeah. To, to, to like... Your... You make up of your mind if you're going to try to do the right thing and then find a way to do it within the, you know, the limitations that you're sort of working under and the constraints that you're working under. Yeah. And also just like staying abreast to like what's current. Yeah. So if you're someone who's been in practice for a long time, particularly yeah. those in private practice, it's not like, I mean, you can get a CEU, but that's what you're opting in to take. Unless you're specializing particularly in infectious disease or in substance use, that is an opt-in type of thing, even for like a lot of medical doctors. Now it's looking different, but for a lot of folks, I've had plenty of medical providers who were like, I genuinely only got like this amount of training on this and that's it. And then I go, well, dang, how could you possibly then be expected to know all these other things? Like for the longest, the CDC didn't recommend that you treat someone's hepatitis C if they were actively using. They said six months of abstinence-based you know, recovery. And now it's not like there was a huge bulletin that was released when they walked it back and said, actually, best practice is to treat hepatitis C even if there's active use. There's not a high risk of reinfection that looks all that statistically significantly different than those who are not in active in, like injection drug use. But if you're not on that listserv, if you're not specializing in that thing, how yeah. could you possibly know that? It's hard for you to know that. And I honestly, it's hard to fault people for not knowing what they don't know. 
right? I think to that point, if you can recognize what you know and don't know or what you're even comfortable dealing with, like let's say the provider did feel like working with somebody who uses substances is unethical, refer them out to another institution where they can get the treatment then. You don't have to necessarily treat that person if you really don't feel comfortable with it, unfortunate as that might be, but refer them out where you can provide. And I'm not just saying call this number, have (laughs) the front desk call the number and make the appointment for that patient at this other establishment, have that warm handoff. But, you know, also, I think for, for medical providers, they should also know that guidelines change all the time. And especially Mm -hmm. in areas like this, where there are legal and ethical issues that are always undergoing social change and political Mm -hmm. change, right? So it seems to me that anybody who is potentially treating people with for hep C, for example, if they don't know that the guidelines have changed on treatment, they should, I would hope at least think, I wonder if the guidelines have changed on treatment. Yeah. (laughs) Because that's not the kind of guideline that it seems like. They know that things change in all kinds of areas. And that's certainly the kind of guideline that could easily change as medications change and as as, uh, society changes. Oh, I'll Absolutely. try not to get too heady with it because I really just think that is actually a tr- like a universal truth for all people. I believe that if you are a human living in a society, you have like a moral and ethical obligation to learn about community and to like learn from community that you're not a part of in order to like know differing things, particularly those of us who are working with people, not just a medical provider. If you are working with human beings, it is your absolute moral and ethical duty, in my opinion, as an individual. Um it is literally your moral and ethical obligation to learn about communities that you're not a part of in order because how the heck could you possibly begin to think that you can serve them if you don't know a thing about them it's totally okay to admit like we said what we don't know and like dante i really want to double back on what you said which is i tell people all the time particularly those who are anti-harm production you don't have to be it just please care enough to send them to someone who does like, Absolutely. please yeah. do that. Do I wish that there were no, you know, transphobic providers? I do. But if you are one and you do get a client, please refer them out. Please don't keep them and then provide like absolutely devastating care, which is going to make them never want to go to care again. The reality is everyone's going to have a bias in some way that doesn't make it okay. I'm just being very pragmatic. You're going to have a biases. You're going to have a prejudice. Mm-hmm. You need to be real with yourself on what that is. And at the very least, if you can't undo that and do that self-education, then you need to refer out. And that's absolutely. like the bare minimum. Yeah. What would you say a healthcare provider could implement in their practice that would be helpful to clients who are experiencing substance use disorder and who are being diagnosed with HIV? I mean, I'll be honest, I'm someone who focuses more on like behavior. And mm-hmm. when you're talking and engaging people, you have to have a meaningful engagement in order to find out what behaviors are we engaging in. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm just, I personally think like behavioral intervention tends to be what's going to make the most sense mm-hmm. overall. Literally do anything and everything in your power to keep that person engaged with you, like to keep them engaged with you, period, point blank, even if they're not ready to get into some sort of treatment program, even if they're not ready to go on antiretrovirals yet, like just anything that keeps them engaged with you so they don't fall off. Because to me, the most scary thing is when people disappear Mm. and then they're gone for a few months. Like I can't know what risk 
like what risk behaviors are engaging in. I can't know how you are if you're okay if I don't see you. I'd rather like see you and know that you're not okay than not see you at all and then have like no way to get to you. All right, we're down to our last couple of questions for you, Alex. So if a patient or a client was to come in today to your office and they admitted, you know, I've been using substances and I'm ready to stop. I don't want to be using anymore. What exactly would uh, the steps look like for someone who's looking to link someone into care? Can you give us sort of like a rundown on what they would do? Yes. So, and again, like I said, it will look different depending on what state you're in. A lot of these things are pretty universal and similar for the state of Connecticut. If we're talking about substance use treatment specifically, whether you are someone who is living with HIV or not, it is going to look different for a variety of reasons. So Mm. the first thing I have to do is ask you, do you have identification? Do you have health insurance? Do you have either of these present with you? And then also I have to ask if you have COVID-19 vaccination. Now I have to ask all of these things because in the state of Connecticut, depending on those answers, you can't go to certain places. Certain facilities will not take you if you don't have an ID. If you don't have insurance, even more so hard to do. There are some that'll be good in the sense of that they can help connect you with state insurance because the reality is a lot of our folks qualify. They just haven't been able to like do the paperwork part. But if you don't have an ID, and you have not been to that facility before, or you haven't been there in a certain amount of time, if you don't have insurance, that automatically disqualifies you for some facilities. What we're seeing more so now this year is also people with like the Medicare, Medicaid being told that they don't qualify for certain programs, which we've been told that's not supposed to be happening. And yet anecdotally, at least so far, because it's only been this year, I've been talking with plenty of people that call detox every single day for folks and they're being turned away. Another issue with this is, so I ask all these questions, right? And I'm laying it out like this because I think it's important for people to know the barriers that exist in asking these questions. The next thing I have to do is ask them, when is the last time that they use their substance use, like their substance of choice? What are their substances of choice? Have they had any thoughts or feelings of suicide? Have they had any things of like hearing voices, um, looking for specifically like schizoaffective type screening? And then I ask about any relevant medical history that they have, any medical issues and medications that they might be on. I have to ask all of these things because these are all things that can disqualify you from a program. So if you're someone who's living with HIV, you, depending on your status, meaning like depending on, let's say like your viral load, depending on your housing status, depending on if you're engaging in care, they may tell you that you need something closer to hospital or ambulatory care, which means that you do not qualify for going to certain facilities. If you have certain medical conditions or mobility issues, that also cuts down dramatically the amount of facilities that you even qualify to go for because they will say that you require a higher level of care than they're able to provide. And the reality is the majority of the programs in the state of Connecticut are not accessible. There are two. The other thing is it has to be opioids or alcohol. Stonington in Connecticut is the only facility that has any program for stimulant use. Everything else is focused around medical detox programming, which would be opioids or alcohol. The issue that then falls with that, that's why I have to ask when's the last time you used, is that if you're not in an active state of precipitated withdrawal, you do not qualify. So if you're someone who's saying, I really want to go to detox, but I only, you know, use heroin a few days a week. If you do not experience withdrawal and you're not using a certain amount, they can actually say that you don't qualify for the program, which most people think- They come to you and they think, I just need help. And the reality is 
when I'm talking to someone about going into treatment, a lot of us, especially due to stigma, will kind of, you know, I don't want to say lie, tell stories. <laughs> like we may, yes, uh, actually the opposite. We may lessen the amount of our drug use when someone asks oh, us intake and screening because you're used to not wanting to tell people how much you're actually using. So like when the person doing the intake is saying, well, like how much are you using a day? I've had people where I see them every day and I hear the answer they say, and I'm like, that's not true. And then she goes, okay, well that you actually don't qualify then for medical detox. And then what happens is you cannot call back until the next day. Cause if you oh call that day, you can't get another intake because then it's seen as you're like trying to finesse the system. They can't actually like say that that's wow. your use. Can I just jump in real quick? Yes. I think mm -hmm. it sounds like they're still behind the ball with substance use uh, treatment and that the facilities would require them to physically be in pain and physically be in withdrawal, active withdrawal. Yes before uh, being able to administer them. I mean, what if somebody just used and they're so depressed and, uh, and upset that they just did, they're not able to then right then and there walk into a facility and say, please help me, I'm, I'm done with, with using, even though I just used within the last 24 hours, they have to be physically in withdrawal. That's wild. Well, so there's a part of it that's specifically like medical wise, which is that like, if you've already utilized a substance, I'm not allowed to dose you with a medication assisted treatment until you're experiencing withdrawal. So that way right. I'm not doubling down on, let's say like opiates or another drug of choice, like whatever. That oh, may I see. Be. So not to overdose or. But that specific part, because everything else you were saying still rings true in my opinion, which hmm. is that first of all, there are not enough beds in most States, honestly, in general, there's just not enough detox beds in general. So what you end up having to do is triage folks, which is then you got to essentially, I have so many people on hold waiting on the line in order to come into a program that are already experiencing precipitated withdrawal. And like, you are not. So if I can't wow. induce you when you come in, then you don't qualify for this program. It also depends on the program because some don't do medical detox. Some only do Suboxone. Um, and when people want methadone instead. So it's just very, very different. I mean, there's been a lot of legal changes and policies, which is a whole other episode on medication assisted treatment, particularly with the X waiver um, and just like methadone in general. But it, there's a whole lot of different barriers because what also comes into play with this, we talked about the ID, we talked about the insurance, we talked about precipitated withdrawal, your substance of choice, right? All of those things. And then transportation good old med cab or veo as we have it in Connecticut, which is that for a lot of our folks experiencing homelessness, there is no transportation. They are good at wrapping around where if you get into a program, you do have medical transportation and, you know, like the detox facility won't deny you if you aren't there within a window. They usually say like, here's your time window. And if you're talking with them or I am, they will be in communication with the med provide, like with the med cab. So that way they know, okay, if something is delayed, that's why, which is mm. good. But what happens is sometimes the med cab takes a really, 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 really long time. I'm talking hours. Yeah. I have sat with people for hours and hours. And it's not a fault of the med cab driver. It's a fault of a system that's really, really overloaded. And so what mm. happens is when you're waiting there for a really long time, a lot of folks will leave. Right. Because like you said, people feel it now and I want help now. Treatment on demand saves lives for a reason. It's because I'm ready now. 
And it's right. all, it takes so much to get to that point of readiness that it feels so urgent. And the thing is, it is so urgent because I've also seen people when they tell me, Alex, I'm ready, I'm ready. And then I call and I have to tell them there are no beds for detox. You can go to the emergency room or I can try calling back in the afternoon and they just go F it. Right. Whatever. Heartbreaking. Like, that's and so I just like leave. And it's hard because that can, that's happened to me with people who don't say that often, who don't talk to me about wanting to go to a program often, or they do go to the program and then the program, they have a terrible experience. And then they're like, well, I won't go to that one. And I'm like, okay, well, there's only like nine in this. There's like six in the state that you can even go to. And now you're telling me that you've had really terrible experiences with two of them. That now brings me to four. Right. So there's so many different things, but that's the overall thing is you kind of prepare them for the intake. They have the intake and then they see if they get matched with a facility that can take them. Is there anywhere that people can get this list, almost like a resource that people can go to uh, maybe online that they have an up-to-date, let's just say, call it an intake or questionnaire for providers. If you could don't mind sharing that with us, we would be more than happy to put that in the description as well for people uh, to be able to access afterwards. It's from Demis. It is the ctaddictionservices.com. What they do is they will give you all of the different like withdrawal management detox facilities listed. It tells you the level of care they provide. It gives you the phone number. They're not always great at updating it, but it usually would tell you how many beds are available. I always tell anyone, anyone listening, if you're calling for a detox treatment, call between 8.30 and 9 a.m. That is when they have shift change. And that is most likely when they're going to. Before that, little dicey. After that, they fill up quick. Inside scoop. Thank you so much for that <laughs> for that little insight. So the website is just www.ctaddictionservices.com. And it'll show you all of the programs on the left-hand side. You can click on them. So it shows you where they are physically located, gives you the phone numbers, and it will tell you also the access line on the bottom, which is if you're like, this is so overwhelming, you can call the access line. It's like an 800 type number, and they will screen all of the state for you. And they'll do that intake for you. And they would even help with transportation. Amazing. So we talked a lot about issues and concerns. My last question is, what would be an ideal way to treat people who have substance use disorder? At the very least, I want to see overdose prevention centers. Um, It's something that I think is just like talked about in a way that is seen as so taboo. And to me, beyond just like harm reduction and how I care about it in my heart, it makes sense. I tell people all the time, like when I hear from folks who tell me, I hate seeing people that are using drugs. I hate responding to ODs. I'm burned out from responding to overdoses, um, which makes sense. Or like, I'm not a harm reductionist. I go, oh, let me tell you about overdose prevention centers because everyone there has opted in to work in that space, to specialize in that specialty and to respond to it. So an overdose prevention center allows for people to not have to do open air drug use. They can come somewhere, not be alone. They can utilize their substance of choice there. They have access to sterile supplies and they also have access to like every type of referral and service. You have medical providers there. You have peer recovery support specialists. It's almost always attached to some sort of housing or treatment-based program. I would love to see overdose prevention centers. It would also drastically reduce our amount of fatal overdoses. I think it would drastically reduce infectious disease. Unfortunately, what you see is in places that have tried to adopt harm reduction in differing capacities, no one does all of it. 
we do pieces, right? So we talk about decriminalizing drugs. Decriminalizing drugs is a great idea to start with. But if I'm not also increasing how many detox facilities I have or increasing housing, increasing mental health services and access to healthcare, then I'm only doing part of it. I'm not treating the whole person and the whole issue. I'm focusing hyper-specifically on the substance use. Well, yeah. on the substance for decrim, right? For overdose prevention centers, I'm hyper-focusing on overdose, response, prevention, and supplies, which is also great. But I need to be able to have something to refer you to. I think that's the big issue is we don't have enough of those other services. We have these great programs that learn how to talk to people. They learn how to engage people. You have the providers that want to do the right thing. You go to call for that program and the program either doesn't exist, won't accept them, et cetera, et cetera. So right. I would increase services. I would focus heavily on just increasing overall basic human needs for folks. I mean, you really got to talk about more like community care. You got to be able and community care in the sense of like talking to your neighbors, knowing yeah. who they are, um, recognizing that people that don't look like you are also part of community and part of people that you need to consider. Um, but yeah, so for me in an ideal world, I'd have overdose prevention centers. I would probably decriminalize drugs altogether. Um, and as well as, and I know this will be a hot topic that can be highly debated after, but there are plenty of other, not plenty, but there are other countries that have had really successful instances of utilizing safe supply services, which is that you have people who have access to, let's say like a medication assisted treatment program. But what it is, is you would have, let's say like prescription level heroin, methadone is another substitute, right? But this is something where you have someone who's engaged in a program, engaged in care, but they have access to a substance of their choice that they know what's in it. Um, I highly recommend if you're even remotely interested in that, I will drop it. We'll put it in the chat too. It's called Dolph, D like dog, U-L-F, F like hmm. Frank. And what they do is they're a drug user liberation union. And what it is, is they were permitted to give out safe supply. Um, to small, small program participants. You know, this was a pilot program and they were able to do it and they were able to track folks for a long time to see what was their risk of um, incident of overdose. What was their risk of incident of using illicit substances besides just the safe supply that they had to supplement? Because of course, you know, they can't just get as much as they want. You know, you're given right. a certain amount of dosing that you're allowed. And I just think that a combination of those things would actually need to take place. And I know it sounds scary, um, it sounds strange and weird to think, why would I provide this like drug to someone else? But like I said, that's where we need to focus on holistic care. It's almost like what we've done now in the state of Connecticut when we legalized marijuana use. And now we suddenly have these dispensaries where people can go and purchase regulated marijuana that is measured and is in certain doses that people can purchase in, in various forms. And it removes the opportunity for people to buy something that may be laced with something on the street. It could have other chemicals. Uh, you don't know what or you're actually mildew. buying. You know, mildew. Mold? Exactly. Mildew. Certain just basic, basic standards. So I wouldn't say that your idea is even that far-fetched. I think it's almost like an expansion of 
how we've been even like legalizing marijuana. Thank you so much for sharing and thank you so much for being here with us today. Unfortunately, this is all the time that we have. On behalf of the Getting to You crew, I'd like to thank Alex for joining us and shedding some light on this topic of substance use and HIV. Alex, if people wanted to get more information or get in touch with you, how can they contact you? Email does help to start communication, um, but I would be very happy. So I work for National Harm Reduction Coalition. So I'm on that website. People can also reach out directly to me with my last name at harmreduction.org. So that would be Dittmore, D-I-T-T-M like Mary, O-R-E at harmreduction.org. Thank you, Alex. It was great having you here. Thanks for joining us. And a huge shout out to all of you for tuning in. Don't forget, Getting to You can be found on Spotify and other podcast platforms, as well as the Connecticut AETC website. That's right. And regardless of what platform you choose, please like, share, and subscribe to show your support and help spread information and awareness about HIV among our communities. And if you have a topic you'd like to discuss or just want to share your feedback, please feel free to do so in the comments section or email us at ctaetc at yale.edu. That's ct. A-E-T-C at yale.edu. To receive continuing education credit for listening to today's program, find a link to the CME website in the description of today's podcast. Please join us again because there's, there's no, no getting, getting to you, you without, without you. you. Bye. Bye.